Do you love your work? Do you think it's possible? Well, you're about to find out. It's time for 48 Days to the Work You Love with Dan Miller on the 48 Days Online Radio Show. Whether you need a professional tune-up or a work overhaul, this is the program for you. Now, here's your host, Dan Miller. Well, I know you love your work. Of course you do. Anybody who's been listening to this for a while knows the possibilities out here. Well, I admit some of you probably are still on that path, but you know, you just have to believe in the possibilities. I was talking with Dave Ramsey this morning. Incidentally, got a copy of his brand new book that'll be released in a few weeks, Entree Leadership. But we were talking about the changing workplace and the new opportunities and how people are finding things that they didn't know existed, how for a lot of people, unexpected and even unwelcome change was really a wake-up call, kind of just jog their thinking. A lot of times finding the best opportunity is not something brand new that's just been invented or just come down the pike. It's just a matter of peeling back the onion and discovering those things about ourselves that we knew 20, 30 years ago and have perhaps ignored. Those are the things that give us a clues about where the best opportunities lie. In my Wednesday morning group, you hear me talk about that a lot. It's a group where I've been meeting with some guys for over 10 years now, and we discuss lots of things, but we're going through a book, an old, old book, Dale Carnegie's book written in 1935, How to Win Friends and Influence People. But we're talking about the power of those simple principles in today's work environment. So just like success principles in that light are, they don't have to be new. They're not revolutionary. They're simple principles. Smiling. Act like you're really genuinely interested in what the other person is talking about. Remember their name. I mean, the kind of, those kind of things go a long ways towards success in today's environment, just like they did in 1935 or 36 when the, the book was released. Same kind of thing. And really the same thing is true in terms of business. It doesn't have to be something brand new that was never thought of before. There are a lot of opportunities today, especially today, to go back and do things the way they were being done right many years ago. Joanna and I were just recently talking about the fact that right here in Franklin, there's a, a gas station that's for sale. And it's in a really cool location that is kind of a revitalized part of the, the town. And we were talking about what if you had a gas station today where you went out and actually pumped it in for people, cleaned their windshield, checked their oil. I mean, what a cool thing. I mean, I know my wife would go there if it cost a few more pennies a gallon. That's not a real critical issue. People are hungry for that kind of service. If you provide a unique service, it doesn't have to be a brand new, never thought of before idea. Well, hey, before I go off on that, we're going to spend the next 48 minutes going through some of the the best questions that you all as the listeners have submitted. If you have a question, you're a new listener, uh, we welcome you into the listening community and you can submit your question. Just go to 48days.com, click on the podcast link and you'll see a little starburst there where you can uh, just hit that and it'll allow you to ask your question. Value the questions that you all submit and I love going through them. I eagerly anticipate Wednesday morning each week when I open that email file and start going through the wonderful real life questions that you all have. A lot of cool stuff in here today and I'm eager to get to it. Here's some of the questions we're going to be hitting on. My passion is cars. Can I compete in the custom car parts market? Dan, while my speaking business is growing well, I can't get booked in my own hometown. 
Uh, somebody says, after being a stay-at-home mom for most of my adult life, I now need to re-enter the job market at the age of 46. What do I need to do so I don't just get an entry-level position? Here, somebody says, one of my major goals at 26 is to be wealthy, meaning having a million dollars in the bank by the time I'm 35. Can I do it with this idea? Well, actually, having a million bucks in the bank, let's see, if you're 26, that's almost 10 years. With the government just printing more money, that million dollars will probably buy you a pretty nice hamburger. So, yeah, you can probably hit that, but uh, we'll, we'll get to the real question here in a little bit. Dan, when you say you can make money doing something you love, I believe you, except when it comes to my passion. Somebody says, many teachers today are unsatisfied with the compensation they receive for their work. I feel that my calling is to make a difference in education. Fantastic. We want to encourage you and help you in doing that. Well, here's a quotation for us, and then I'm going to jump right into our questions. This comes from George Burton Adams, who lived in 1851 to 1925, who says, there is no such thing as a self-made man. We are made up of thousands of others. Everyone who has ever done a kind deed for us or spoken one word of encouragement to us has entered into the makeup of our character and of our thoughts as well as our success. Well, I love that quotation. You know, just recently, actually, I think in the last week's podcast, somebody asked about the wheel of life that I have in the new version of 48 Days to the Work You Love and wondered if he could use that in his own teaching materials or if it was copyrighted. Well, my answer was yes and yes. Uh, yes being, by virtue of being in a book, obviously, yes, it is copyrighted. Am I going to get upset if he uses that in teaching people and giving them hope and encouragement? Absolutely not. And I also went on to, to say, um, you know, if, if I gave credit to all of those whose writings, their speeches, their blogs, or podcasts shape my thinking in the creation of that wheel, I'd have to add another book to hold all the names. You know, I've probably created very little that's new and totally original, but I, I simply compile and present the wisdom of many who have gone before me and Yes, I am forever grateful for their willingness to share so freely, and I certainly hope that I do the same. So, yeah, there's no such thing as a self-made man. Be grateful for the advice and opinions and wisdom that you've gotten along the way and give credit where credit is due and just uh, be somebody who also shares freely. Stephen says, let's see, from Mobile, Alabama. Stephen says, Dan, I know you love cars too, so maybe you can give me some advice on a business idea dealing with them. I have a deep set passion for custom car parts, meaning exhaust, manifolds, etc. And he wants to build these for import cars, Mazda, Toyota, Honda, Nissan vehicles with so many other companies and knockoff Chinese manufacturers doing the same thing. Is this even a viable market for me? I'm a highly proficient welder and fabricator and I get a rush of excitement when I think of owning my own custom performance parts company. Another question is, how does one go about getting small parts made that need a lathe or a CNC machine to be created and still make a profit? Most of the parts I want to make, I can fabricate. However, some will require a precision machine. Well, Stephen, yes, I am a car guy. I love everything about cars. Just the last couple of weeks again, I've had some opportunities to be involved in car things and old cars and just love the process. Now, as to your question, Yeah, I think you're looking at a really tough market. You're looking at something, but let me help you just kind of break down where you still have an opportunity here. You love the idea of custom car parts. The manufacturer 
of those car parts is not where there is significant money to be made. The, the manufacturing of that will produce peanuts. It's in the selling of those that there's big, big money to be made. I mean, just as an example, I can have a book printed for, let's say, $2. The printer has to supply the paper, the machinery, the overhead, the labor, the ink, everything that goes into printing that and gives it to me for $2. I mean, he may have made 20 cents on that. That would not be unexpected, 10%. So he makes 20 cents on that. I sell the book for $20 and make $18. So I make $18, he makes 18 or 20 cents. And that's a big, big difference. But that's really the dramatic difference between those who get paid for making a product and those who get paid for selling. So don't ever lose sight of the opportunity to sell these things. Now, that being said, there are plenty of companies, as you already mentioned, who are making custom car parts for these cars. You would be better off to position yourself as a broker or as a wholesaler or reseller of those materials if you really want a financial opportunity rather than something that is so labor and time intensive as what would be required in making those. Now, just this week, I read Robert Kiyosaki's new book, Robert Kiyosaki being a rich dad, poor dad guy, new book called Unfair Advantage. It's really a dynamite book, incidentally. But in there, one of the things that jumped out at me, he says, jobs will continue to be lost because American workers are paid 40 times more than the lowest wage workers in the world. That means labor jobs are not coming back. American workers are paid 40 times more. That means here, somebody making the parts you're describing will expect to be paid $40 an hour, and that would not be unexpected with the custom car parts as you're describing. Whereas in other parts of the world, somebody would do the same work for a dollar. That means it's pretty hard to be competitive when you're involved in the manufacturing side. So again, I commend you on your your affinity for cars, your passion for cars, but I'm afraid you're looking at the very lowest income potential part of that industry. Uh, just move yourself to focus on the, the selling part, have a blast, knock it out of the park, and work with all those great manufacturers around the world who are already doing that. Now, I got a question here. Jason left this um, via the phone, which uh, you can do if you want to call our Google voicemail number. But here's Jason's question. Hey, Dan, this is Jason from Missouri. I've encountered a problem with my speaking and writing business. It seems that in my hometown, nobody is interested in what I have to say. But I have no problem booking out-of-town appearances, and it seems people are generally love me and love what I have to say. I know Jesus said a prophet has no honor in his homeland. I didn't know if you had a similar problem or how you overcame that problem. Thanks. Well, great question. You know, that I've used that phrase, Jesus, who said, a man hath no honor in his own town, a prophet hath no honor in his own hometown. I mean, that's really true. Here, here's a quick example, and then I'll address your question, Jason. I am not a member of our local chamber of commerce. Now, I love what they do. They're a wonderful organization and really active, have great meetings and all that. But every January, I'm their speaker. They have me kick off the year like I'm some, you know, pro from Dover. And I'll guarantee you, I would not be viewed in the same light if I were a member of that organization. It's just different. Now, I don't, you know, I'm not being real intentional about that. That's just an occurrence that happens. But yeah, you're, you're right. I mean, I get a lot of requests for speaking engagements that are out of town, just 
uh, this morning confirmed one in Chicago in November. And if they were an organization right here in Nashville, it'd probably be different. There's something kind of magical about bringing somebody in from the other side of the country or whatever to speak. So that's okay. Don't, don't negate that. And I do a lot of speaking here locally in civic organizations and churches, many of which are not paid. They're just kind of because I'm part of the community and you'll probably need to do that. If you position yourself as a paid for speaker, it's probably going to be tough to do that right in your own hometown where they knew you growing up. They knew you as a little kid wearing a baseball cap backwards, you know, and riding your bicycle hard to take you seriously. It's just part of the territory. It's true for everybody in any kind of industry. Just, uh, it is what it is. Continue doing your bookings where there are opportunities another question wow uh, oh you know right here let me ask let me just include this one from chad because it kind of relates dan um i am a regular listener appreciative of everything that you and ashley do for this great community of like-minded individuals my question is this what's the best and easiest way to calculate travel expenses when quoting customers on training or consulting work i usually have a per day charge plus expenses but i'm trying to find an easy system to calculate this thanks so much Chad, I would encourage you, don't try, incidentally, I love your logo. Uh, Chad's company is Performance Solutions Group dot biz. Anyway, I love your logo, the PSG. It's just a really cool logo. Uh, don't try to have a cookie cutter plan for calculating all of your expenses when you're doing consulting. If you're going to be on location for a week, I mean, that's a little different. When I do speaking engagements, and I'll just kind of use my model for that, I never say my standard, you know, per diem charge for travel expenses. I need, you know, a hundred dollars a day for eating, blah, blah. I don't do that. Frankly, I, I never charge for eating. It, it, I mean, I'm going to eat anyway. I just feel stupid charging a client for meals, even I, if I am away from home. I just don't do that. But I would encourage you to treat each deal differently. So customers know you're being very specific and realistic for them. I just estimate hotels and flights. Now, I usually don't even throw in cab fares and those little things. I don't want anything unexpected to show up in an expense account for a client. I'm going to concentrate on my fee for consulting, my fee for speaking. That's the major thing. I'm going to be very, very gracious and flexible on the other kind of things. As an example, well, I mentioned just this one in Chicago. Chicago happens to be a place that Joanne loves to go. She loves to visit there. And this engagement is going to be going into the holidays when they start decorating Michigan Avenue, the magnificent mile and all those things. So I'm, I'm, I'll just check with her. I'll tell her where I'm going to be in that particular commitment. And if she wants to go along, absolutely. We'll do that. Now, how do I handle that? I'm not going to go back to the organization and say, Oh, incidentally, my wife is coming with me. And incidentally, instead of staying at your host hotel, which is just a conference hotel, we like staying at the Palmer Hilton down on Michigan Avenue. I'm not going to do that. So I'm going to say, you know what? One airline flight is at this much dollars. That's what it is right now. Let's just lock that in. So if, if it's going to be, you know, $320, boom. So that's going to be my fee for airlines. Now, if I decide to take Joanne with me, then that's my deal. Also, if there is going to be, if they are going to include hotel 
and perhaps the host hotel, which they likely will in this case, I'll stay there the one or two nights would be connected with my speaking. If we decide to extend that, stay in another hotel, I just handle that on my own. But I don't complicate it by, gee, you know, I only like blue M&Ms in the dressing room and all that kind of crap that you hear from speakers. Man, be a hero. Be easy to work with. Make people want to have you come back. And in doing that, don't have just cookie cutter, ridiculous kind of fees in addition to your consulting fee. Make your consulting fee something you can live with if you didn't get anything beyond that. And then have very reasonable standard kind of rates for hotel, travel, those kind of things. Joel, Joel Lee, Joel Lee, I guess it is, from Cookville says, Dan, I've been a stay-at-home mom for most of my adult life. I will now be entering the job market at the age of 46. I'm separated, so I will need to begin making an income immediately. I have no degree, but I'm intelligent, self-educated, and reasonably attractive. How do I go about my search for employment that is in the medium to high pay scale rather than entry level? Great question. And here's how you have to approach that. Your compensation has little to do with your age, um, probably your education at this point, since you're 46 years old, you know, if you got a degree when you were 22, eh, it's really not going to have a lot of bearing probably anyway. But what you have to be really clear on is your value to an organization. Now, the fact that you are 46 doesn't by itself make you worth more or put you in a position where you should be paid more than somebody who's 26. Your value ought to be more. So you have to be really clear. Now, it doesn't matter that you've been a stay-at-home mom. You need to identify what are two or three areas of competence. Are you great at budgeting, forecasting, handling transportation logistics? Did you do fundraisers at your kids' schools? I mean, all those things, I mean, customer service, interior design, I mean, all those things have real tangible value in the marketplace and could be things that you developed as a stay-at-home mom. So don't undervalue those you can have things on a resume that show your areas of competence that were never connected to paid for jobs. That's not what they're asking at that point. The resume is to describe what is it that you bring to the table as unique value. So be very clear on that. And if you in fact do have valuable talents that would have a value for an organization, you present those. Yeah. You don't need to start at the bottom of the pay scale, 10 bucks an hour because you've been a stay at home mom for that you could be be able to position yourself out here if you do graphic design or customer service or public relations or human resources and again the list goes on and on but you position yourself as competent in an area and if that positions you at 50 or sixty thousand dollars nothing wrong with that at all not unexpected hold your head high go out there and do exactly that well heath says i'm an avid listener to you for advice after hearing and reading A lot of your content, I decided to go with my passion. I built a website called BassJoe.com. After it was constructed, I looked into wholesalers only to find a minimal profit margin, 30% or less. The thought of investing 3,000, now now stay with me on the figures here because I'm going to do some mathematics on the end of this. The thought of investing $3,000 into fishing lures and only getting $900 profit if I sell it at all doesn't sound good to me. 
One of my major goals is to be wealthy, meaning $1 million in the bank by the time I'm 35. I'm 28 now, and I know that's ambitious, but as Tony Robbins says, life will pay what you ask of it. I need help. My love is the outdoors, and my purpose in life is to help fatherless sons through the outdoors. Any advice you would have would be taken and run with. Thanks for your time. Well, thanks for your question. Appreciate your question, um, Heath. Uh, it sounds like you're onto a, a, a great thing. Now, you you have learned a little bit about starting a business. You don't build a business, build a website, and then find out what the product that you want to sell is going to cost you. So obviously, you got that a little backward. Okay, be that as it may, you're still fine. Yeah, I did take a quick look at your site. It's fine. But if you, incidentally, if you invest, as you describe here, you invest $3,000 and make $900 profit, you haven't made 30%. You've made 23% because you sold it for $3,900. $900 profit on that is only 23%. And you're right. That is not great. I like way bigger margins. I want something where if you spend $3,000 on it, I want to see you bring in $9,000. You know, so if you spend 30 cents on something, you, you get it, uh, well, 99 cents in that case. But anyway, that, so you triple your money, not just get 23% increase. So if you sold your $3,000 merchandise for 9,000, you net $6,000 for your efforts, not 900. Now those margins are not unrealistic. I mean, I always look for things where I can be at four to five times my cost. I buy a lot of books in the $2 range. Well, we can put them out there for $8 as a special. That's four times. $10, that's five times. I mean, that's the kind of margins that I'm going to expect on merchandise that I have out there. And it's not unreasonable to do that. Now, what can you do in the fishing arena? You ought to be able to look for, look for liquidations, closeouts, where you may be able to buy, you know, 500 lures for pennies on the dollar. I mean, that's not unexpected at all. I mean, companies change, companies go out of business, manufacturers have overruns of last year's merchandise, whatever. Look for things where you have those deeper discounts rather than just being a traditional distributor for a company where you may be in that 30 to 40% range. But then if you want to help the fatherless, you know, sons through the outdoors, what could you add under your fishing umbrella could you add ebooks, other informational products? I mean, keep in mind, there's always more margin on information than on real physical products. I mean, we sell, we sell over 50% at 48 days. We're over 50% electronic products. People choose the electronic version of my books, audios, or whatever. Well, what does that mean? It's pretty easy to figure that out. That means there's zero cost of production. There's zero cost of that product. Rather than just the two or three bucks we may have on an actual physical copy of something, there's zero. Geez, I like those margins. You know, it's 100% profit, no cost at all. And we have lots and lots of our product sales are in that category. So look for those kind of things. And then, you know, also can you do teleseminars, workshops? Look for other ways that you can generate income in addition to just the physical products that you have. Hey, just a quick reminder, if you um, have a question, just go to the podcast link at 48days.com and leave your question there. Joby says, I just watched Daddy Daycare starring Eddie Murphy. 
This movie captures every element in the 48 Days book. I was so encouraged and uplifted as I watched these daddies discover their passion for child care and connecting with their own offspring. If you haven't seen it, please watch it and promote it as an encouraging movie for those on the road to creating the work they love. Well, I'll just pass it along, Joby, as your recommendation. I don't think I saw that. I kind of remember the previews on that, but I, I, I don't, I don't go to a lot of movies. Incidentally, I'm, I'm kind of uh, force myself to go with Joanne because she enjoys it. We just went to see Larry Crown just this last weekend. Larry Crown, the Tom Hanks, Julia Roberts movie. And really, I found it pretty discouraging. Yeah, it's a big name movie, but the gist of the story is, you know, this dude that had been in the military, been in the Navy for 20 years and then retired, and he was working in a, and obviously a Walmart store, it was Umart, but just a big box retailer. He was working there, you know, doing okay, got good reviews and liked what he was doing. Well, then he lost his job because they didn't think he was promotable because he didn't have a college degree. So he decided, well, he better go back to school. So, I mean, everything in his life deteriorated. I mean, he was divorced, and then they foreclosed on his house because he couldn't keep up with that. He bought a little motor scooter that you see him running around town in, and he went back to school, you know, buying into the old American myth that, gee, you need to go get a degree. Golly, I mean, here's a guy that's probably 45, 46 years old. He's going back to college. I mean, he had a good time there, and he kind of struck up a romance with one of the angry, depressed, discouraged professors being Julia Roberts. I mean, that's how it ended. I mean, my gosh, this guy essentially just procrastinated having any real plan for his life. Uh, anyway, well, <laughs> I, I'm not a movie critic. I just uh, comment. I had somebody this morning in my guys group comment on Cowboys and Aliens. Another one I probably would not choose to see, but he's saying there's all kinds of great lines in there. Um, who, let's see, um, uh, Harrison Ford is in that. And, uh, so there's some great lines in it, but, uh, thanks for the recommendation on daddy daycare. Well, John says, um, uh, Dan, will be attending right to the bank this week, but I thought this worth submitting. I got the email below after logos had requested to reprint one of my posts, which I did. What questions should I ask about ownership? promotion distrib- distribution with this also if there's no promotion should i maintain ownership now he's talking about articles here's the note that john received back from logos my name is greta i'm an acquisitions editor for logos bible software your blog has come to my attention i really enjoy your writing style i'm curious if you've ever considered writing a book or perhaps just making a compilation from your blog post I would be interested in the possibility of digitally publishing a work by you. We've started a new imprint for Logos Bible Software called Kirkdale Press, which will be publishing Christian trade books, fiction, nonfiction, Christian living devotionals, and so on. Well, in in regard to your question, John, what questions should you ask about ownership? Everything is negotiable today in the publishing industry. I mean, everything is up in the air, believe me. With what they're talking about here, where they just want to provide this digitally, I would just say, sure, you can do that. Let's produce a digital product. You maintain rights to any physical product that you want to have from that, and you just share revenue in some form or fashion with what they move digitally. Now, here is where, here's where it gets really interesting. Now, this is not likely to be a big deal with what you're talking about. But ultimately, having it available digitally doesn't put money in anybody's pocket. 
the question still is who's going to market and sell that. So if you're the one that is going to be driving traffic to that with your ongoing blogs, you're going to be sending people there. You're going to be talking about it as you speak and travel around the country. And you're the one that's selling it. You know, there's really not about a lot of value in them just making it available. If you're the one selling it. Now, on the other hand, if you're just an author, you want to sit at home, you aren't out doing any speaking, you aren't doing regular blogging. They're going to market it in their new catalog and they're going to highlight it about how great this is. Yeah. Then they deserve a significant share of the revenue from that. So those are the things to be discussed. Who is going to be doing the marketing and that, ought to be reflected in the biggest percentage sharing in the revenue where publishing is just being knocked on its ears. Of course, you know, borders is now officially closing all their doors. I mean, we've got a major retailer out of the, out of the game here. What's happening is more and more people do not go into bookstores and just stand there and browse until they find a book they want. Retail stores are just a distribution point. So somebody hears about, 48 Days to the Work You Love, or somebody hears about Robert Kiyosaki's book or Dave Ramsey's Entree Leadership, they hear about that, they go to the closest bookstore or jump on Amazon to simply order it, to pick it up. So all those places are doing is just delivering it. They're not doing the marketing. So the real weight of the whole process comes back to who's going to do the marketing. Well, if I'm going to do the marketing, then I expect to get the lion's share of profitability from anything that's sold. Publishers realize that they know they darn aren't in a strong position at this point. So there's a lot of things being negotiated. I'm going to have, incidentally, I've got a whole series of meetings lined up with publishers in a couple of weeks. I, I go in, I, I don't have to beg for anything because I've got some plans pretty well in place already. And so the question becomes, you know, how can you offer something that would be more appealing than what we've already got laid out here? Again, I don't mean to be hardball at all, but it's, it's becoming increasingly a question. Uh, why would I give my content uh, to a publisher? I'll keep you posted on that. Who knows where that's going to end up? Well, Gene says earlier this year, I kicked into high gear doing freelance work because I thought I would be losing my job. I was actually looking forward to this, by the way, by April, I had sold several written pieces and my portfolio garnered the attention of two virtual editors. Now I've stumbled across an editorial position in a location in which I would love to live and I want to apply for it. My only professional experience, however, has been freelance work. How do I sell my abilities as a writer editor when I've never held a traditional job that uses these skills? You know, Gene, again, a great question. Let's just frame this. What companies look for today is competence and ability to perform value to the organization, level of responsibility. I mean, degrees and credentials are way down the list if you have a proven track record for the last couple of years. So just show them what you've done. Show them writing that you've done. Show them that you are getting an audience for that. There are other competitors for your writing. I mean, those things have a whole lot more to do with your appeal in that audience than having a degree that you got a few years back in English composition. I mean, it really just, just don't be, don't be deceived by thinking that you're in a weak position because you haven't had jobs that required your writing skills. Show what you've done. There's a whole lot of people that are making radical changes because of what they developed on the side, having nothing to do with their career track in terms of paid positions they had.
Thomas says, Dan, I just started listening to your podcast, checking out your blog and online resources. Appreciate the work you do. When you say in the podcast, now this is interesting. I love this question. When you say in the podcast that you can make money doing something you love, I believe you. Dot, 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 dot. Except when it comes to my passion. I love African politics and good governance issues. I thought my calling was to get a PhD and teach the subject, but my entrance exam scores weren't high enough. Plus, I have a lot of student loan that I have from a law degree. Can you really turn something like African politics into money-making ventures? I live in a city where that, where there isn't exactly a high interest for this, nor any NGOs around for me to go knocking on doors. Please help. NGOs meaning non-government organizations. You hear that term a lot more in third world countries like Africa. Okay. Now, Thomas, can you make money with your love of African politics? Yes, absolutely. You can. And, and frankly, getting a PhD in teaching would be at uh, somewhere way down the list in terms of my interest and desires for how I would focus that. The world is too volatile. There's too much happening. There are too many opportunities out here, too many things that are changing quickly. You get in an academic system, you're going to be dealing with things that really happened 10 years ago. I mean, academic institutions are always catching up to what's happening in the real world. They're not the thought leaders and leading people into new arenas. They're catching up. That's why we have organizations all over the world who are introducing programs on entrepreneurship, programs on social entrepreneurship, because it's a real ethical capitalism. And those are all hot topics because that's already happening out here in the real world and has been for the last 10 years. Now universities are saying, well, gee, you know, we see this happen. So we better start teaching this. So you're not going to be at the forefront of what's happening in this arena. If you just want to get into an academic arena and you're certainly not going to knock it out of the park financially if you want to do that. Now, again, nothing wrong with that. If that's where you feel energized and you, you like that academic environment, I mean, that's fine. You can still find ways to get into that even without your PhD. At least what, what, what it amounts to, you can get into a position in a university. They do want you to be working toward that. But as long as you're very slowly working toward that, um, you can still hold a position for a very long time there. However, what I would encourage you to do is look at other ways to immerse yourself in the African culture and be a resource there as a consultant trainer, however you want to position yourself. I, I don't know where you live. You say there's not a lot of interest in African politics where you live, and that would include most of the world. But if you immerse yourself in the African culture, so you put yourself in contact with potential clients, I mean, that's exactly what my son, Jared, my 33-year-old son, Jared, who lives in Mombasa, Kenya, I mean, that's what he did. He loved Africa, wanted to be there since he was a little kid. I don't know where it came from, wasn't from me, but that's what it was in his heart. So we encouraged him in that, and that's where he lives and has for many years now. But in being there, then he learned the culture. He learned the language. He learned the ways of the people there. Interesting, he was a vegetarian, a very strict vegetarian for about 17 years until he went to Africa. Well, then you you go out in the bush, which he did, the Maasai warriors. He went out and spent like a month in the bush with them. Well, they have an honored guest, you know, this, my son, and they kill a goat and bring it in. 
you know, something that's a real specialty that they may only have once a month and they kill a goat and bring it in, you're going to say, no, I'm sorry, I'm a vegetarian. Yeah, that's going to really ingrain you in there, ingratiate you in their culture. Well, he decided he was more interested in being part of that culture than he was in being a strict vegetarian. So he compromised on that real quickly and rightfully so. But because he's so comfortable in that culture, he now is a very sought after consultant and has worked with organizations like Rick Warren's organization, uh, the Bill Clinton Foundation. I mean, they gave him a chunk of money one time, this is a couple years ago, for him to find and import bicycles for a NGO, for a humanitarian organization there, and they needed like 600 of them. Well, Jared researched it, went through all the, the rigmarole you have to go through, the hoops you have to jump through to import things like that, get through customs and all, and he and organizations use him like that. He now is in Mombasa, but he's a, a very well-compensated consultant for uh, some churches and other uh, parachurch or nonprofit organizations where he simply advises them about how to do effective work in the African culture. So you, you can do much the same. I mean, just uh, look at ways like that, creative ways, instead of trying to stay inside the norm for engaging your passion. And yes, you can use your passion and make money. Hey, just a reminder, if you've got a question, just go to the 48days.com link, click on podcast. You'll see a little red starburst there. And, you know, we've increased it from 60 words to 150. And a lot of you have expressed appreciation for that because it makes it a little easier to format your question. And I appreciate the continue, the additional details really. So again, 48days.com podcast, click on the starburst. You can ask your question there. Jim says, Dan, on your show the other day, you stated that you don't currently have a project that feels like a raging tiger to you. Uh, You recently answered a question for me in reference to Chasing Hope, uh, an organization that just recently moved to Franklin, Tennessee, to center their business. Their website is ChasingHopeMusic.com, and it will have all new videos in a few weeks, which will show you who they really are. We just need someone to partner with that can envision how the new music industry will be working, The past models won't work for future artists. We would love to chat sometime if you want to have a tiger-like project. Well, Jim, again, I appreciate your enthusiasm about what uh, these gals are doing at that site. And it looks like they're doing, you know, wonderful work. And I commend you on that. Um, I I have a lot of projects like that that I endorse wholeheartedly. I mean, we've got some things here locally like Narrowgate and leaving the cocoon that Joanne and I are real involved in and support and wholeheartedly. And and those are wonderful organizations and we love to see what they're doing. I mean, I've been part of some things that the Nashville rescue mission has done. I love what they're doing. They've got a men's singing group. Um, and then, Oh, I I can't bring the name to mind right off the top of my head. But anyway, it's a really cool kind of thing. And I love what some of these organizations are doing. When I talk about a, a tiger, by the tail, yeah, I'm really talking about a project that you know I have to work on. I have to to make happen. Maybe I'm, I'm drawing straws on that, but anyway, thanks for the the recommendation there. Claudia says, Dan, two weeks ago I launched my website yourmilitarystory.com, which allows anyone who ever served in the military to share their stories and memories. It's a Ning social networking site similar to uh, 48days.net. I would really like to promote this site in a big way. This week I'm attending, oh, good, cool, cool. I attending the Right to the Bank and saw 
in the ebook version of Right to the Bank book, the section about press releases. Upon looking at the two companies you recommend, I'm not sure which way to go. It looks like one is about $150, the other's around $400. Do you have a preference as to which company to use for my situation? My thought is to put a press release out right before Veterans Day in November when military stories will be on people's minds. Any suggestions you have for my site is appreciated. Thanks, Claudia. Well, Claudia, I'll get a chance to talk to you about that in person uh, real shortly here, apparently. And and what you're going to find is when we talk about press releases, I'm going to say use these two sites or any one of the other 40 that are similar to that and don't do just a press release, but be doing at least four or five other things as well. So anything that I talk about in terms of promotion of a website is going to be in conjunction with a whole lot of other things. We're going to be going through 48 things that you can use to fill marketing things that you can use to fill your business funnel. So it'll be a matter of, okay, I don't really care which of these services you use. You can't narrow down so specifically and say, well, this is where I'm going to put all of my marketing efforts and dollars. Certainly I usually do things that don't cost any money, but this is just one part. So if you want to do that, that's fine. But have you also put the word out to be available to do radio and TV interviews that week, the week before veterans day? Are you doing a guest posting on blog sites? Are you commenting on 10 blog sites websites other than your own that have to do with the military. So you draw, those are the kind of things that will build momentum for what you want to do. Devin from Idaho says, Dan, many teachers today are unsatisfied with the compensation they receive for their work. I feel that my calling is to make a difference in education by listening to your podcast and reading no more Mondays. I have realized that the most valuable product will be my knowledge and experience. I will be finishing college in April. I realize that it may take me 10 to 15 years teaching in public, private, charter, and homeschool settings to have the expertise needed to market myself as a coach to other teachers. What can I do to set myself up to be in a position where my experience can be a greater profit generator than the time in the classroom? I believe that great teachers can change public education. My mission is to be a catalyst for that change. Great question, Devin. You can be a catalyst for change in that environment, but you need to be committed to a mission and vision that goes not only beyond the 10 or 15 years of teaching that you're looking forward to, you need to be committed to a vision that goes beyond your lifetime because you're talking about a system that has taken hundreds of years to develop and is not going to change overnight. Now I would encourage you to broaden your vision for coaching. If you want to impact world changers, you can, but to just target teachers is a really tough market. Now just think about it with me. There, there's so many organizations and programs out there that claim to want to improve education. I mean, that's a hot topic and there's hundreds of organizations and consultants and training programs that want to accomplish that. Making changes in education is like turning the Titanic. It's going to take a really long time. Now, the other part of the equation here is this to be compensated by the educational system is probably not realistic. I mean, obviously they think they are working internally to make the changes necessary. 
you show up on the horizon with a new idea, uh, they're going to want to think, well, we're already doing that. We're working towards systems that do exactly that. So to be compensated by the educational system, I think is a stretch to be compensated by the teachers is probably not going to happen. I mean, the teachers are going to think, well, that should be provided for us. So we shouldn't have to pay for that. So I think you've got a really tough market to position yourself in as a consultant. Again, let me go back to my first statement on this. I would just encourage you to broaden your vision for coaching. You could impact world changers, no problem at all. But I would encourage you to look at perhaps parochial school systems, private school systems, homeschooling systems, classical school school systems, parents who are educating their own children. I mean, all those things where you have an opportunity to connect within organizations where decisions and changes can be implemented, implemented and made more readily. And then the other thing, expand how you can leverage your intellectual content. So you're not restricted just to the time and effort required to do personal coaching or consulting. What could you put together in informational products? And really don't, don't get too hung up on the fact that since you're just beginning that you need to put in 10 to 15 years to be a credible voice in that environment. You know, we see that violated every day. I mean, we see, you know, computer whizzes out here who, you know, spend 30 days getting up to speed and they are in fact an expert. Now a little experience certainly helps, but don't think that you have to you know, be 50 years old or you have to have put in 20 years of experience before people are going to listen to you. No, people listen to things that do have real value, things that challenge status quo, things that can add to their thinking about what could be done. I mean, those are all things that you can do and you can start immediately, even as somebody who's been on the receiving end of the academic system. So you're a knowledgeable student. You can approach it as that. You know, we, we're seeing a lot of success stories that are coming at it, approaching it in that way. So don't, don't, um, don't, don't hold up your, I hate, hate to see anybody think that they're going to have to wait 15 years for success to start happening. Uh, to me, that's a very long period of time. I'm not that patient. If I can't structure something, so I'm going to be seeing significant results within one calendar year, I'm probably not going to do it. Now, now certainly there are going to be examples that would violate that and things that need to be done that are going to take a long time. And we see the value of, now I already said, you know, you, you can be part of something where you're not going to see the changes that you want happen in your lifetime. I think there's a lot of value in that, but I don't think you want to put all your eggs in that basket. I mean, there are carpenters who worked on, or stonemasons who worked on cathedrals in Europe where it took a hundred years in the construction process, where they started on that, worked their entire life, knew that it would never be finished in their lifetime. There's still merit in that kind of work. You can do that. If you're part of something that you believe in that goes beyond even your physical lifetime, that's cool. But be realistic about what you expect to happen and how you expect to be compensated for that. I mean, those are the things that are going to help you define how you're going to shape this opportunity. Well, wow, I've got a lot of other things that I'd like to cover. Hey, I hope you're doing well. Oh, we're into this interesting time of the year. We're almost looking at holidays already when things typically kind of slow down, but great 
time to be planning. What do you want next year to look like? I've got some exciting new things on my plate. Excited to meet some of you in our live events. Coming up the remainder of this year, check those out at 48days.com. Hey, and I know you're one of those who is either finding or creating work that is meaningful, purposeful, and profitable. Have a great week.